Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. All right, today we are talking about, in our Contramundum class, the law and religious liberties. The Horizon Christian Fellowship is in the state of Massachusetts, and the Massachusetts legislature passed a law adding gender identity to the state's public accommodations law. Although the public accommodation statute does not expressly cover churches, the Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination stated that churches, when they host events that they view as secular, like a church dinner, they are public accommodations and must comply with the gender identity law. So the state's highest law enforcement officer, the attorney general, also declared on her website that houses of public worship, houses of worship are public accommodations. That practical effect required churches to open their sensitive areas, including changing rooms and restrooms, to members of the opposite biological sex. This requirement conflicts, as you might imagine, with the binary belief of churches regarding God's design for human sexuality. Four diverse Massachusetts churches wanted to impact the community with the love of Christ, but the Commonwealth of Massachusetts threatened those churches with fines and imprisonment simply for operating consistent with their faith. Thankfully, the Commonwealth officials voluntarily reversed courses as a result of these churches filing a lawsuit against the state for impinging upon their religious liberty, and they revised their official gender identity governance and website language so that the state would not impinge upon the church. On the other coast, Skyline Wesleyan Church in the San Diego area is strongly opposed to abortion. However, the California Department of Managed Health Care required that all churches' health insurance policy include abortion coverage. They were interpreting the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, as requiring this. The DMHC went about this quietly without passing a new regulation or allowing for public input, which is a direct violation of state law. Skyline's health insurance policy was changed, and they were faced with a difficult decision. Provide health care coverage or drop it, because they were not going to provide abortion coverage. World Vision, that charitable humanitarian organization, spent four years defending themselves against three former employees who had signed a doctrinal statement stating they believed in the deity of Christ and the Trinity. Well, when it was discovered that they had not and they had violated that doctrinal statement, they were terminated, and as a result, they sued. That impinges upon the organization's religious liberty. The U.S. Supreme Court left intact a ruling that from the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, one of the most liberal courts in the nation, backing World Vision. This president of World Vision said this, the court's decision represents a major victory for the freedom of all religious organizations to hire employees who share the same faith, whether Muslim, Buddhist, Jewish, Christian, or any other religion. And it has been documented that there are those people who are adverse to an organization who seek to infiltrate the organization for the very purpose of a little money, a few Benjamins. And it's all a ploy. Anybody recognize this lady? This is Baronel Stutzman, and she is a florist. You've heard about this case, right? She was the sole owner of Arlene's Flowers in uh, Richland, Washington, had a long reputation of working and serving the community and hiring people of all sorts of backgrounds, including homosexuals. She had a longtime client of 10 years who came to her and said that she wa- he, he wanted her to create a custom floral arrangement for his same-sex wedding ceremony. She politely refused, 
offered some alternatives, gave him a hug, he walked out. It was discovered on Facebook by the uh, state attorney general what happened, and he sued her, not only the company, but her personally, and the ACLU jumped into the fray as well, going not only after the business, but her personal finances. So what you're reading there, they want my home, they want my business, they want my personal finances as an example for other people to be quiet. That is indeed what they were after. It's hardly disputed that artistic expression, such as floral art, is speech. Matter of fact, the Washington State Attorney General admitted as much. So the real issue here is whether or not the state can compel her to speak a government-mandated message. The state claims it has the right to do so. That it has the right to go after a 72-year-old grandmother uh, for everything she owns just because she believes, what she believes, does not fall in line with the state's political agenda. Yeah, what state did you say that? That's Washington. Richland, Washington. In the Northwest. Mm-hmm. Blatantly unconstitutional, right? Right. If the government can demand that we speak a certain message or be punished, that should concern us all. That just puts not only Baronell's freedom at stake, but everyone's. After hearing about Baronell's decision in the news, the state attorney general went after her. And the ACLU followed. The court ruled initially against Baronell, ordered her to pay penalties and fines. In February 2017, the Washington Supreme Court concluded the government can force her, and by extension other Washingtonians, to create artistic expressions and participate in events in which they disagree. In July 2017, um, the U.S. Supreme Court was petitioned to take up Baronell's case. Who is this individual? That's the cake decorator, right? Jack Phillips, Colorado native and cake artist, opened his shop in 1993 and has served the uh, Lakeland, Colorado community, I'm sorry, Lakewood, Colorado community for more than 20 years. Uh, in, 19, in 2012, Two men came in to his cake shop requesting a custom wedding cake celebrating their same-sex marriage. In a brief exchange, Jack politely declined the request, saying he could not design cakes for same-sex weddings, but offered them custom cakes for other occasions or to sell them any pre-made item in the shop. Shortly after that, Jack started to receive phone calls from people threatening and harassing him because of his decision to not use his artistic talents to make a cake celebrating the couple's same-sex marriage. Instead of responding in anger, Jack used those opportunities, those phone calls, those threats as an opportunity for prayer for those individuals. That couple filed a complaint with the Colorado Civil Rights Commission for sexual orientation discrimination. Even after explaining to the commission that it wasn't people Jack objected to, it was the message the cake would send about marriage. An administrative law judge ruled against Jack in December of 2013 saying that designing and creating cakes for same-sex wedding ceremonies are not speech protected by the First Amendment, and his religious beliefs are not protected by the First Amendment. The commission ordered Jack and his staff either to violate Jack's faith by designing custom wedding cakes that celebrate same-sex weddings or stop designing all wedding cakes, about 40% of their business. Jack and his staff were also ordered to go through a re-education program and file quarterly compliance reports telling the government every time that Jack declines a custom cake request and why. Houston, we have a problem. In 2013, Mayor Anise Parker, who is an open lesbian, defied state law and ordered the city of Houston to recognize same-sex marriages from other states, even though Texas law prohibited same-sex marriage and the U.S. Supreme Court had not yet ruled that same-sex marriage was a constitutional right. Houston passed their bathroom bill, which sparked a citizen initiative to have the council either repeal the bill or place it on the ballot for voters to decide. The public submitted more than three times the required number of signatures to have this on the ballot. The mayor, city attorney, 
and the rest of the council defied the law and rejected valid petitions to repeal the law that allows members of the opposite sex into each other's restrooms. So, what happened? Five of the city's largest church pastors were hit with a subpoena that they would have to surrender 17 different types of communications because they, all they wanted to do was squash any resistance to their illegal power grab. This was a lawsuit in which these people were not involved. The city illegitimately demanded that the pastor, who were not party to the lawsuit, turn over their constitutionally protected speeches, sermons, emails, text messages, and other communications with their congregants simply so that the city could see if the pastors had ever opposed or criticized the city. These are the elected officials. There are two quotes that I believe you have on the handout, um, and these are important, um, from the Alliance Defending Freedom uh, Foundation. Uh, the first one there, from uh, Eric Stanley. Public officials should not be allowed to run roughshod over the right of the people to decide these types of issues, especially when the citizens of Houston clearly met all the qualifications for having their voices heard. The subpoenas were successfully fought uh, we successfully fought, were only one element of this, this, this disgraceful abuse of power. The scandal began when the city arbitrarily threw out the valid citizens of thousands of voters. The city did this all because it was bent on pushing through its deeply unpopular ordinance at any cost. The Texas Supreme Court, thankfully, has rectified this wrong. City council members are supposed to be public servants, not servants, not big brother overlords who will tolerate no dissent or challenge. They have embarked upon a witch hunt, and, they, and the uh, Alliance AD, ADF asked the court to put a stop to it. Another statement from legal counsel, Christina Halcom, and that is this. The city's subpoena of sermons and other pastoral communications is needless and unprecedented. The city council and its attorneys are engaging in an inquisition designed to stifle any critique of its actions. Political and social commentary is not a crime. It is protected by the First Amendment. So, the subpoena's discovery requests are overbroad, unduly burdensome, harassing, vexatious, irrelevant to the lawsuit, and would have had a profoundly negative effect on free speech and the electoral process should they have been allowed to move forward. The message was clear. Oppose the decisions of city government, and drown in unwarranted, burdensome, costly discovery requests. Paul Pillar makes a very important point. This is not just about particular and local religious issues. This is also something that crosses a government bounds. Both parties, individuals within government, within bureaucracy, are undermining the rule of law. Mr. Pillar says, in part, that there have been in recent American history too many other indications of an erosion in respect for the rule of law. From those within the government whose functions are all about making or executing the law. There has been, for example, the ignoring of judicial review requirements on a matter that, as we see in the current debate about electronic surveillance, is controversial enough even when the law is observed. There have been presidential signing statements which are a way of explaining an interpretation of a law, but at times have been used instead to declare an intention to not obey a law. So again, it's widespread, it's not just small pockets, it goes to the highest level. This is the city of man, and the city of man's agenda. You all know about President Obama and the Title IX uh, Dear Colleague letter, where he threatened to remove federal funding unless public schools embrace the new gender identity laws. You, you may not know about St. Francis Catholic Preparatory School, who had a 32-year 32 32 year employee 
who was asked to dress appropriate to his gender, appropriate to his sex. This is a Catholic school. And he sued for sexual discrimination because he was undergoing transgender procedures. Preston High, New York City Catholic School, two girls fighting were expelled, which is what you would expect, right? The one girl claimed that she was expelled because she was a lesbian. She was brought back to school. The other girl was left out. Catholic Fontbond Academy in Massachusetts. There was a job to a food services director, and it was offered to this individual. When it was discovered, as he was filling out his paperwork, that he had a husband, directly in violation to the school's charter, the offer was rescinded. The man sued, claiming discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. California Lutheran High School Association. Two students who were engaged in an unrepentant homosexual relationship, two girls, lesbian relationship, they were dismissed from the school, and of course they were sued. Well, let's look at it from another point of view, shall we? So, Seattle, Washington. There are people who are going out and they're handing out tracts, showing the horrors of abortion and the damage to women, never mind unborn children. And they're going around the community and they're doing this. And they go to this coffee shop, Bedlam. If you look on the right side of that photo, you should recognize the rainbow flag, which has been hijacked from the beautiful covenantal promise that God gave to Noah and to all of us. And they went in, they ordered coffee, went upstairs peacefully, not creating a ruckus. The owner of the shop, a very militant, aggressive homosexual, asked if they were the people handing out these gospel tracts and anti-abortion tracts. They said they were. And he started to berate them, blaspheme, abuse them, and kick them out of the shop. They, they didn't file a lawsuit contrary to these other things. But the video went viral and it showed the non-existence tolerance of progressivism. There's no tolerance there. They'd been simply evangelizing people in the city for days. Progressive tolerance included curses, blasphemy, blatant discriminatory refusal of service to individuals because they are Christians. In contrast to such hate, the pro-life Christians were utterly graceful and was documented on the video. So what happened? How did we get here? What's this all about? Well, as we've talked about before, every society has a structure of systems that either influences or coerces behavior, right? We talked about that before. Law-based honor, shame-based honor, Eventually, societies move to legislate and regulate behavior in order to alight the society with what is commonly, or at least largely, considered morally right and wrong. Throughout almost all of Western history, for the most part, this process has played out in a non-threatening way for the Christian church and Christians in the larger society. So long as the moral judgment of the culture matched the convictions and teachings of the church, the church and the culture were not at odd in the courts. What's happened now? Well, all of that has changed in the modern age as the culture became more secularized, right? We recognize that. More distant from Christian morality that they had embraced in the past. Christians in this generation recognize that we do not represent the same moral framework now pervasively presented in modern academia, the context of creative culture, and the arena of law. The secularization of public life and the separation of society from its Christian roots have left many Americans seemingly unaware of the fact that the very beliefs and teachings for which Christians are now criticized were once considered not only mainstream beliefs, but essential to the entire project, warp and woof of society.
as a sexual revolution completely per pervades society and issues raised by the efforts of gay liberation and the legitimization of same-sex marriage comes to the fore, Christians face an array of religious liberty challenges that were inconceivable 15, 20, 30 years ago. We now face an inevitable conflict of liberties. In the context of acute and uh, radical moral change, the conflict of liberties is excruciating, immense, and intense, and imminent. In these cases, the conflict of liberties means that the new moral regime, with the backing of the courts and the regulatory state, will prioritize erotic liberty over religious liberty. I'll say that again. The conflict of liberties means that the new moral regime with the backing of the courts and the regulatory state, will prioritize erotic liberty over religious liberty. We talked about the sensitivity training that this bake shop owner had to go under, right? In order to understand how the new moral regime uses sensitivity training, it's helpful to think back to the iconic works of 20th century authors like Aldous Huxley, Brave New World, George Orwell's 1984. You remember that was part of it? You'll know that there are some communist regimes that were also known for their re-education camps. The challenge we face consigns every believer, every religious institution, and every congregation in the arena of conflict where erotic liberty and religious liberty will clash. So, it's easy to believe that we've become the new moral outlaws. Standing up for historic Christian principles will increasingly get us in trouble socially and maybe economically, perhaps one day also criminally. It's ironic that Christians are told not to impose their views upon others, even as the threat of job loss or other penalties loom over Christians for not towing the new party line. Don't you impose your belief on me. I believe that you should not impose your beliefs on me. And you better conform to my beliefs. Let's diagram this sentence. Doesn't make sense. But again, sin corrupts the mind. So, there's a necessary review. Morality, public law, and who can speak to it. Now, unfortunately, it's not just in the realm of academia and philosophers. Let me read you a quote. <clears throat> I would simply say, Mr. Chairman, that this nominee is really not someone who this country is supposed to be about. Now, that was a U.S. senator on June 7th, 2017, opposing the approval of a nominee for public office because he admitted that he believed, when questioned, that non-Christians will be eternally condemned. Article 6 of the Constitution states that there will be no religious test ever required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. That statement by the U.S. Senator and that, statement's, that, that Senator's doggedly pursuit of that issue was in direct violation of Article 6 of the Constitution. There are two authors that I believe I have there uh, quoted on, the, on your uh, handout. Uh, Robert Audi and Kathleen Sullivan. In a free and democratic society, churches committed to being institutional citizens in such a society have a prima facie obligation to abstain from supporting candidates for public office or pressing laws or public policies that restrict human conduct. Lawyers in the group, what is prima facie or prima facie? I know there's at least one lawyer in the group. It's sort of the origin of the rule. The origin of the rule. First authority, first, first rule. 
They have an obligation. First, this is a groundbreaking law, rule, principle that they need to abstain from trying to impact any public policy. The next statement by Kathleen Sullivan. The correct baseline theory is not unfettered religious liberty, but rather religious liberty insofar as it is consistent with the establishment of the secular moral order. Wow. Sounds pretty bad. So, in other words, if these God-believers would be granted religious liberty, they will be only as long as their liberty doesn't interfere with the establishment of a purely secular moral order. Class participation time. What chilling implications could that have? How we raise and influence our children. Good. Yes, Randy. A slippery slope, we're halfway down it. We're going backwards. This is not progress. Yeah. <clears throat> Dear, your point is exact. Think about the laws that were passed, you know, in India, Seti, the burning of the widow or the burial of the widow to reclaim the dowry. All right? The, uh, in our country, slavery, child labor, bestiality. None of those laws would have been passed without the impact of the Christian faith. Bedlam was the right name for that coffee shop. Let me give you a little story. Um, three children. This gentleman had three children, 12, 9, and 5. And they're average kids, and they enjoy annoying the daylights out of each other. Last fall, sitting around the dinner table, the 12-year-old was doing a particularly great job at annoying their her siblings, she finally grew so frustrated that she said, Oliver, you need to stop talking forever. This inspired a volley of protests about free speech and ended with them yelling, shut up, at each other. Despite trying to stop the fight and restore order, I asked each of them in turn to tell me what free speech meant. The 12-year-old went first. A serious and academic child, she gave me a textbook definition that included Congress shall make no law, an evocation of James Madison, a tutorial on the Bill of Rights, and warnings about certain exceptions for public safety and libel. I was happy to know their private school fees were yielding something. The nine-year-old went next. A rebel convinced that everyone ignores her. She said that she had no idea what public safety or libel were, but that it doesn't matter because free speech means there should never be any restrictions on anything that anybody says anywhere or any time. She added that we should all start by learning, listening more to what she says. How special. Then it was the five-year-old's turn. Listen to this. This is great. You could tell she's been thinking hard about her answer. She fixed both her brother and her sister with a ferocious stare and said, free speech is that you can say anything you want as long as I like it. It was at this moment that I had one of those sudden insights as a parent. I realized that my oldest was a constitutional conservative, my middle child was a libertarian, and my youngest was a socialist with totalitarian tendencies. <laughs> What's happening here? What's happening? There are two kingdoms with two different worldviews. When the Roman Empire was falling, Augustine, or Augustine, depending on how you'd like to pronounce that, you have freedom of pronunciation here. It's okay. He described the very clash of these two kingdoms in his monumental work, The City of God. And he explained humanity is confronted by two cities, the city of God, the city of man. The city of God is eternal, takes its sole concern the greater glory of God. The city of man is different. The city is filled with mixed passion, mixed allegiances, and 
compromised principles. Of course, we know that the city of God is eternal, even as the city of man is passing. But this does not mean the city of man is unimportant. If you have the chance to listen to some of the presentations that together for the gospel, Ligon Duncan did a masterful job of talking about the two great portions of the law. The first, Godward, and the second, man-directed. And that second commandment, that great second commandment, which was like unto the first, talks about loving our neighbor as ourself. We bear important responsibilities in both cities. Our goal as parents was to make our children fit citizens of two kingdoms. That was our goal. From generation to generation, Christians swing between the two extremes, ignoring the city of man or considering it to be our main concern. A biblical balance establishes the fact that the city of man is indeed passing and chastens us from believing the city of man and its realities can ever be of ultimate and extreme importance. When Christ instructed us that we are to love our neighbors ourselves, he pointed us again to the city of man and gave us a clear assignment. Philosophically, for the benefit of all people, what should we espouse? Well, we should espouse certain things. Liberal democracy that allows all participants in the debate to speak from whatever worldviews they have. Two, they should declare the convictional basis for their arguments. Three, there's a recognition on everybody's part that there's a limit on secular discourse and on religious discourse. Number four, a, religious, a liberal democracy must acknowledge the commingling of religious and secular arguments, motivations, and outcomes. And number five, we must acknowledge and respect the rights of all citizens, including self-consciously religious people. Now, you would think that those five statements would be unnecessary since the First Amendment to the Constitution specifically protects freedom of speech, religious expression. But as you can see from the evidence of what we've presented so far and what you know from the papers and news, real news, not fake news, that this is essential today. There are two very healthy quotes that were offered to us by the uh, Supreme Court justices. When the decision was made by the majority that there was a constitutional allowance for same-sex marriage. So the first quote here by Justice Roberts. The majority's decision is an act of will, not legal judgment. The court invalidates the marriage laws of more than half the states and orders the transformation of a social institution that has formed the basis for human society for millennia. For the Kalhari, Bushmen, and the Han Chinese, the Carthaginians, and the Aztecs. Just who do we think we are? The court today not only overlooks our entire country's history and tradition, but actually repudiates it, preferring to live only in the heady days of here and now. I agree with the majority that the nature of justice is that we may not always see it in our own times. As petitioners put it, times can be blind, but to be blind yourself to history is both prideful and unwise. And Justice Scalia put it very soundly as well. He said, what really astounds is the hubris reflected in today's judicial push. Uh, push is a violent attempt to overthrow the government. It's also a coup d'etat. The five justices who compose today's majority are entirely comfortable concluding that every state violated the Constitution for all of 135 years between the 14th Amendment's ratification and Massachusetts' permitting of same-sex marriages in 2003, which you have to admit is a pretty heady claim. They have discovered in the 14th Amendment a fundamental right overlooked by every person alive at the time of ratification and almost everyone else in the time since. These justices know that limiting marriage to one man and one woman is contrary to reason. They know that an institution as old as government itself and accepted by every nation in history until 15 years ago cannot possibly be supported by anything other than ignorance or bigotry. 
And they are willing to say that any citizen who does not agree with that, who adheres to what was until 15 years ago, the unanimous, unanimous judgment of all generations and society, stands against the Constitution. So, whew, how do we respond? How do we respond? Jesus said, if the world hates you, it hated me first, John 15. Jesus said, woe to you if men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. In an increasing secular and ungodly culture, many, many of us wonder about our role and our duty. Should we lobby for rights that have traditionally belonged to us? Should we make every effort to implement a Christian agenda? Should we completely reform the government? Society has taken a nosedive into deeper and deeper evil, debauchery, violence, and corruption. And outside the church, the landscape seems filled with modern barbarians. The temptation is strong to jump into the fray or to retreat. We can understand the lure of monasticism. And there are some societies that do that. There are some Christian circles that do that. The church will really change society for the better when individual believers make their chief concern their own spiritual maturity, which means living in a way that honors God's command and honors his name. If you have a copy of God's word, I want you to encourage you to um, turn to Titus 3. Titus 3, 1, 1 and 2. There are five statements in this passage. Titus 3, 1 through 2. Look at this. Remember, remember the culture in which this was written. This was not written at a time when Christians were celebrated. This was not written at a time when Christians were protected by the law. This was actually in the starting of the great persecution against the Christians. Right before the time that tar was put on Christians and they were used as torches for the parties of the government. They were seen as enemies of the state. And the writer, inspired and directed by the Holy Spirit, has the nerve to tell these people this. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Submission and obedience. The first two duties are combined under one heading. They're so closely related. It's a reminder that we have certain requirements of attitude and conduct in relation to our secular leaders. Now, we're going to get into obeying God rather than men later. But the second point is readiness for good works. We are reminded in this passage that we're not talking about some minimal, reluctant adherence to doing what we already know is right, but a sincere willingness and heart preparation to do good works for everyone as we have opportunity. No matter how antagonistic it is our role to do good to all, especially those who are of the household of faith. Galatians chapter 6. C, third item. We're to be respectful in speech. It says to malign no one. We have the scriptural duty of not maligning anyone, even those unbelievers who are antagonistic toward biblical standards, mandates, and ourselves. Paul's command to malign no one refers to cursing, slandering, treating with contempt. The Greek term rendered malign is one from which we derive the English word blasphemy. So we're not going to blaspheme others, and even if they're president, we don't agree with. Letter D, peaceful and gentle. Paul goes on in verse 2, to mention two more Christian duties. First, he reminds us we must be friendly and peaceful toward the lost, not belligerent and quarrelsome. In the ungodly postmodern world we live in, it's easy to condemn those who contribute to the culture's demise. 
and write them off as corrupt sinners who can never change. But brothers and sisters, such were some of you. I was. God in his mercy used his people and the faithful, tender, gentle proclamation of the word to smack us upside the head and get us to our right minds. Letter E, the fifth item here, showing every consideration for all men. The final duty in Paul's list of reminders is that we should show every consideration for all men. It's a genuine concern. Jesus is one who is supremely characterized by humility and consideration. It's the same trait that we should follow. Well, there are seven guiding principles. Seven guiding principles. Um, They are that remember that we work for supernatural change. We don't work for temporal or temporal earthly change. We're looking for change from up above. Second, we need to remember that persecution is normal. Like I quoted the two passages. We should get rid of the idea of utopianism, that we can create a totally Christian society and that we should separate ourselves. How many miles away from that utopian society are we? I mean, we live less than 40 minutes away from a new harmony, right? Two utopian societies, one built trying to go after the city of God, one trying to go after the city of man. The city of man was corrupt. Within months it fell apart. Nobody would work. And there are some businesses that are there today that still exist because of you know, Christian principles. It's amazing. But the utopian societies that were sought to be built during that time don't exist anymore. We need to next make use of our democratic stewardship, seek to be an influence of salt and life in our society. You rub the salt into the meat, that's how the, the meat is preserved. We have to be there, we can't be in a salt shaker. All right? We need to trust the Lord, not human circumstances. Like I prayed, put no confidence in princes, nor for help on man depend. They shall die to dust returning, and their purposes shall end. Hallelujah. Praise Jehovah. Remember that everything we have is God's grace, and rest in the certainties of Christ's victory. You know, Romans 13, 1 through 7, reminds us to be subject um, to the governing authorities. And we don't have time to read it. We're going to run out of time here. But I encourage you to read and pray about Romans 15, 1 through 7. One reason that Paul spoke so solidly, so soundly about submission to the state is that he wants us to remember that the danger to our soul from unjust governments is nowhere near as great as the danger to our soul from the pride that kicks against submission. No mistreatment or unjust law ever sent anyone to hell. But pride and rebellion is what sends everyone to hell who doesn't have a savior. I'm going to repeat that statement. Paul spoke resoundingly about submission to the state because he wants us to know the danger to our soul from unjust governments is nowhere near as great as the danger to our soul from the pride that kicks against submission. No mistreatment or unjust law ever sent anyone to hell. But pride and rebellion is what sends everyone to hell who does not have a savior. So, Again, the question is, what's our response? Showed a little picture of the fellow with the Bible. Let's look at examples. We've talked about some of these before. Acts 5. The men were preaching. They went out preaching. They were caught. They were, you know, taken by the authorities. And what did they say? We must what? Obey God rather than man. And there is a time when if it violates God's law... You're going to go with God's law. You're going to do it in a way that's honorable. You're not going to get out the torches and the pitchforks. But you're going to disobey. 
Daniel 3, 9 through 18. I'm sorry, let's, Daniel, let's talk about Daniel 6 first. When the, when the law went against Daniel, specifically designed against Daniel, what did he do? He went up to the second floor, opened up his windows, and he prayed. And when he was captured and thrown into the lions, is there any biblical evidence that he put up a fight? He entrusted his soul to the one who does all things right. This is not easy. None of us would pretend that it's easy. Daniel 3, the three young men in the furnace with the fourth one in their presence. What did they say? They said, we have no need to answer you in this matter, O king. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if it not, be it known to you, O king. You notice how many times they're using the proper title? We will not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Civil disobedience on the basis of religious conscience. And for it, they were thrown into the furnace, and they did not resist. <clears throat> Exodus 1. What about those wonderful midwives, huh? Hey, Pharaoh, I can't help it. Your Egyptian women are all weak. The uh, Hebrew women are robust. They deliver the kid. <laughs> we can't do anything about that. I don't know how honest that was. But they were not going to obey Pharaoh's edict. Esther. Esther violated the principle and rule and went into the king's presence. And she did so because she was there for such a time as this. And you and I are here for such a time as this. Well, um, and there are times when we need to think about um, where civil disobedience is called for. I've given you a few principles there, I believe. Uh, we're running out of time, so I don't want to... Um, I don't want to um, exacerbate things. And we need to consider non-resistance and active love for our enemies. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 38 through 48, You've heard that it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which, by the way was a law given in the Pentateuch specifically to protect against excessive punishment. But I say to you, do not resist one who is evil. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks. Do not refuse him who borrows from you. We need to ask if God is calling us to do that. Not violate our conscience, not violate God's law. Open your copy of God's Word again, if you would please, as we close. And Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32 through 39. <clears throat> and I have to freely admit that this is a tough lesson for me because I want to fight. I want to fight. I have a strong sense of justice. Especially if I'm the one suffering injustice. Look at Hebrews 10, verse 32 through 39. The writer to the Hebrews has this incredible statement concerning Christ and judgment. And how those who trample underfoot the blood of the Son of God, consider it unclean, are going to undergo judgment. In verse 31, he says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Verse 32, but remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated for you, showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. 
you catch that? You accepted joyfully the seizure of your property knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God you may receive what has been promised. For yet in a little while he who is coming will come and will not delay but my righteous one shall live by faith If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. We live in perilous times, but this is not a time to turn into the cowardly lion. This is a time to have great and bold faith in a sovereign God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you do not allow us to rest in uneasiness, but you cause our minds to dwell upon your word. You challenge our passions. You challenge our thinking. And, oh, Lord, I pray that as we consider how to boldly follow you, and have great confidence in you that you would enable us to be a blessing to those who would be opposed to you and opposed to your church, opposed to your people, opposed to us, that we would demonstrate that we are your children, that we reflect your patience and your compassion. Help us where we can, Lord, to influence our society for good, to be bold in our proclamation, to be fearless in our trust of you, that Christ would be glorified. Help us, if need be, Lord, to be like these people that the letter to the Hebrews was written to, that we would accept joyfully the seizure of our property because we know that we have a much greater inheritance. And we thank you in your Son's name. Amen.